0: Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea, and my guest for this month's interview is Robert Elio Cabrales. Robert is an experimental researcher at the New School for Social Research in New York, New York. Robert received an MA in Western Esotericism from the University of Amsterdam in 2019, and a BA in Philosophy with a minor in Art from Lewis and Clark College in 2017. Robert's work explores the intersections and interdisciplinary engagements of philosophy, art, and religious studies. Their research includes and overlaps postmodern aesthetics, ritual magic, chaos theory and chaos magic, phenomenology, xenopoetics, performance philosophy, and feminist and queer studies, as well as research on experimental culture, media, technology, and scholarship. Today we'll be discussing the topic of hyperstition, which in short is defined as fictions that make themselves real. And I can imagine that this might be new for many of the listeners. Hyperstition is a complex but fascinating thing that isn't so easy to describe, but I hope that you, the listener, won't give up if you don't immediately get it. We've tried to give many different types of examples to help illustrate what hyperstition is and how it functions. In Part 1, Robert discusses the origins of hyperstition, and our old friend William Burroughs from last month's podcast joins us again, as Burroughs' ideas about time and control play an important role in this story. And, as with Burroughs, the use of magic to try to change reality is also important here, especially with regards to semiotics. Semiotics or signs and symbols. Theosophy's theory about root races, Alistair Crowley, and Lovecraft also get a mention. Charles Fort, best known for his compilations of strange and unusual tales, also makes an appearance as an example of how hyperstition works. Fort's concept of truth fiction lends itself very well to the hyperstitional model, as you will find out in this first part. So take my hand, if you will, and let's jump into the rabbit hole together. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. It's a pleasure to have you here today to talk about hyperstition.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So
0: have I. So let's just jump right on in. As we discussed beforehand privately in preparation for this interview, uh, there is really no rigid structure that can uh, be created in order to try to explain what hyperstition is all about. So we're just going to start somewhere and let it reveal itself to us. And I think we can begin this interview by discussing the origin of the term hyperstition by the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, or CCRU for short. So what was this group about? When was it created? And why did they come together in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, it goes right for the throat because the CCRU is itself a hyperstition. So it are, already starts to complicate things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so that's I think
0: fine, though. Let's, let's, let's keep defining
1: going. what cybernetics is, uh, might be a good place to, to ease into the, the historical quote unquote context. Okay. Uh, so cybernetics as a field, as a discipline, as a way of thinking started post-World War II, um, from a scholar, Norbert Weiner, and it's the study of control and communication in machines and living beings. Uh, More specifically, it's the study of adaptation through application of information sharing and processing. So the the most important term here that's going to go into the rest of this conversation is feedback, kind of adaptational learning through doing. So that gets us to the, the cybernetic culture research unit. In so the CCRU was formed at Warwick University in the UK, roughly between the years of 1995 and 1997. So in in the 90s, Warwick had a pretty progressive and experimental faculty, especially in the philosophy department. In 94, 95, and 96, there were a series of radical experimental conferences called the virtual futures conferences and the virtual futures conferences called on scholars artists various kind of fringe researchers to look at the relationship between cybernetics uh, technology and culture specifically in this kind of pre-y2k cyberspace uh, internet boom. Um, so, a lot of post-humanism, a lot of speculative aesthetics. Uh, so, f- through these conferences, a lot of traction between scholars started at the university. And um, the, the scholar Sadie Plant, who is a cultural researcher, she was at Birmingham University, I believe, um, up until 1995. And through the Virtual Futures Conferences, she ended up working at Warwick and starting starting the CCRU. And she started that with the scholar Nick Land, who's pretty infamous now uh, for his antics, one might say. And then a whole slew of other people who are big names now. Uh, write these down, lots of things to Google. Um, so Nick Land, Sadie Plant, Mark Fisher, also known as K-Punk, Ray Brassier, Ian Hamilton Grant, Kudo Eshen, the group Orphan Drift, uh, and later on Reza Negarstani. All of them were evolved with a bunch more people. Uh, so that's kind of the, the context. And then what they were about. Um, I'm going to quote them directly from one of their texts. Uh, they said they were a rigorously unbelievable exercise in hyperpunk pop occultism and dark side cyber jargon, splicing chunks of impending calculus into fake memories of hell. So from that, you kind of get the the ethos, the aesthetic element in this research. So they were looking at cybernetic culture, um, various techno-sciencey occult things,
0: in relation to this control aspect that yeah. you mentioned so before? Yeah, so control
1: and cybernetics, um, you can see the relationship there, especially on a, a cultural level, because if you have this system of feedback learning from itself, when you have various scales of structure in which feedback can be created, uh, you start to get controlled feedback, Um The original term would be negative feedback from cybernetics proper, and this is maintenance making sure something is contained rather than kind of falls apart uh, or goes kind of spirals into a singularity. Positive feedback, okay. So in, in 1997, Sadie Plant left Warwick, she wanted to just kind of be an independent researcher, wasn't meshing well with the structure of academia. Um, There's speculations around why she left exactly. But at this point, CCRU started to get really fringe and really weird because it was being run by Nick Land, who was going through his own kind of uh, actualized radicalism, uh, which we could get into later if it comes up. But the... When asked about the CCRU in 1997, and this is kind of the famous phrase around the CCRU, um, the university was asked about the CCRU, and they gave the st- the statement, CCRU does not, has not, and will never exist. So this feeds hmm. into the, the myth of the CCRU, kind of a hyperstition itself. So they, they left the university, and until 2003, they kind of worked out of a flat as independent researchers developing the writings that are kind of iconic now like Lumerian Time War um and the the Cthulhu Club stuff so and that all kind of coalesces in the mid-2000s with the release of Cyclonopedia which is the first CCRU book and it it's expansive and brilliant in its own light so that's kind of a quick context agree with a lot to it
0: Alright, um, one of the texts that was produced by the CCRU that you just mentioned is called Lemurian Time War, and this text is a recollection of sorts that the CCRU had with a person uh, named William Kay. Now, Mr. K. tells a story that involves William Burroughs, uh, whom the listeners will remember from my last episode with Tommy Cowan. And Tommy mentioned hyperstition then during our interview and talked about how Burroughs' method of cut-up was influential to the concept of hyperstition. Uh, But let's take a step back. Let's talk first about the Lemurian Time War text. Uh, What happens in this story?
1: Yeah, it's a great place to start with hyperstition. So in, in 1999, the CCRU claims that they were approached by a, na- a man named William Kay, and they used this kind of as a pseudonym to protect his identity.
2: Right,
1: right. Um, and he tells them this elaborate story uh, that involves William Burroughs. It involves kind of World War II, secret military operations, um, and it, it kind of unfolds from there. But I think good context to under to explain the entirety of Lumerian time war is found in another section of uh, CCRU writings, The Origins of the Cthulhu Club. So I'll, I'll work through these to get us to William Kay, and then we can do kind of the Lumerian Time War element
2: okay, with great. a little more
1: context. Cool. So yeah there's so many ways to start this. Um, <laughs> We'll start with Captain Peter Vassarov. Right. Who was uh, an American of Russian descent in the early 20th century. And his family left Russia. They had a lot of money. But they had this, this history of kind of m- occult mysticism about them. Speculated why they had that money in the first place, but also the reason they had to leave Russia. So Vassarov grew up around money and around occultism. Um, so it was very much already part of his worldview. Mm-hmm. So when World War II was happening, concluding, he was contracted to go to an island that the, the indigenous people of this island were rumored to be descendants of the Lumerian root race, which is discussed in Theosophy. Um, and he was contracted to go there to work with them and understand their magic, their time magic specifically, and how it can be used for military gain. So after this, after the war, Vasparov became very interested in the relationship between Crowley and magic uh, 20th century occultism in a culture, and H.P. Lovecraft specifically. Because uh, he saw, he came to understand the term hyperstition itself from H.P. Lovecraft specifically. And so through this research, he founded a group called the Cthulhu Club, which was a bunch of people who had seen this connection, were interested in studying it uh, more rigorously as a research method proper. And this this Cthulhu Club eventually became uh, a virtual university, Miskatonic virtual university, uh, and is also referred to as Shadow MIT because there were a lot of people kind of overlap between the two universities. And so in the midst of this, Vasparov uh, became interested in Burroughs because he saw in Burroughs the same kind of fictioning tactics that were at play in lovecraft and this this gets us in Lumerian time war in a in a less linear sense so the the plot of Lumerian time war as i said is uh william k who was vasparov's assistant goes to the ccru in 1999 to help preserve their story from the ravages of time um and he, he tells the story of William Burroughs specifically. And Burroughs and Vasparov met in 1958. Uh, as I said, the Cthulhu Club was interested in his work just as much as Lovecraft's. And through, through this interaction with Burroughs, Burroughs went to Vasparov's personal library. And in this library, Burroughs finds a copy of a book, Ghost Lemurs of Madagascar which is a book that Burroughs would write in 1987, but he was finding it in 1958 in this library. And on top of that, the copy of this book was already 200 years old, more or less. So this event of Burroughs finding this book he would write in the future as this old archaic artifact plunged, burrows into kind of this visionary state where he saw himself as an old man writing this book a long time ago. And this creates this kind of temporal rift uh, that has to be fixed. And the the text gets into how this is fixed um, with a whole lot of outside context that gets into like control and reality. Um, But yeah, that's, The the gist of Lumerian Time War is Burroughs finds this book that he wrote a long time ago, and it creates this kind of time ripage uh, that has to be fixed or exacerbated.
0: Right. So uh, I think we can move on to the next question then that I have for you, uh, Burroughs views about writing, language, time, and space that I discussed, uh, with Tommy in the last episode are important with regards to hyperstition and how we can understand what's going on with it. So in this text that you've just been describing, uh, it explains that hyperstition is quote fictions that make themselves real end quote, and that quote reality in this model is understood to be composed of fictions. So multiple fictions. Um, however, there is a dominant control system and you just mentioned this uh, aspect of control. Um, so this system of control acts to prevent us from realizing these potential realities or these fictions, I guess we could say, um, as I understand it, uh, this dominant control, uh, control system was considered by Burroughs in any way as time, linear time. So, am I correct in my understanding of this? Yes, yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, so using, if we, if we stay with Burroughs, then um, let's talk about this conflict between what we think of as real. And what we think of as fiction and this control program that conditions us uh, and this, this conditioning that hyperstition is performing against. Let's talk about that first, and then we can move into how this is all uh, a part of this magical war that the Lemurian Time War text actually is talking about.
1: Definitely. Uh, there's so the, the question about reality uh, rather than fiction uh, right. and what what reality is. Um, the The quotation from Lumerian time War is, as you said half of it already, fiction is not opposed to the real. rather reality is understood to be composed of fictions consistent semiotic territories that condition perceptual, affective, and behavioral responses.
0: So, what does that mean exactly? In plain talk.
1: Yeah, in plain talk. Let's <laughs> let's see if I can even do plain talk. Um,
0: I'm going to challenge you here.
1: <laughs> so, reality as something controlled um, is understood to work a certain way, and because the way that it works is understood as what even constitutes real things that don't conform to this realness thus aren't real. Right. I don't know if that was straightforward or not. Uh, but.
0: Yeah. I think that, uh, well, at least I'm beginning to understand this more, uh, more clearly, but what I do recall the text talking about is that what we consider uh, to be real has to do with this concept of time, because we live in this linear uh, time system. Um, this is a concept that we have created, that we operate our lives by time, but that in in a certain way, if we can kind of uh, give this, uh, I don't even know if I can call it a uh, kind of a humanistic type of character that we anthropomorphize time. Time is like one of the potential realities that is kind of uh, dominated, and that's why they call it the dominant control system. It's It has like a monopoly over all of the other potential uh, realities, that there are all these realities out there But we are unaware of these realities because time has made it so that we only think that that's the only system there is.
1: Yeah, this is referred to as the one God universe in uh, Lumerian Time War, and it's credited to Burroughs. Um, I'm not a Burroughs scholar. I don't know where he said this, when he said this, how he said it, but it's accredited to Burroughs. Uh, And the One God universe is exactly that. It's this mega-narrative that incorporates everything into it. And on the most abstract level, this meta-narrative now is perpetuated by physics and physics' insistency on linear causality for events to occur. The most effective way to establish control for this one God universe is to erase all traces that it's control in itself. Um, So the the real gets contrasted with fiction. Uh, So everything that threatens this singular narrative is still part of the narrative, but discredited as things within the narrative.
0: As being not real. Yeah. So there's this, uh, what do you call that? A dichotomy that there are these. You have one thing against another thing. So real versus not real. Yeah. Okay.
1: Essentially, this this reality is a, a set fixed space, and everything that doesn't fit into the fixed narrative is still there, but discredited as real. Uh, so it, it's no threat.
0: Right. Okay, so I think that's pretty clear. Uh, So we have these uh, competing, uh, I guess, concepts that we're dealing with. So let's move now into how this is then uh, a part of this magical war, this time war that is talked about in the text.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. So the definition of magic that's used in the text is the use of signs to produce change in reality, uh, which is very similar to the Krolian definition. Mm-hmm. Um, art and science of change in accordance with will. There, there's a lot of overlap, uh, but it's it's the use of signs to produce change in reality. And so far, we've we've referred to hyperstition as fictions that make themselves real, but they're. The definition gets a little more nuanced than that. And I think having a, a more, more depth to the definition will allow us to engage this magical time more um, and understand what's at stake and what's even happening. I call this the rights of hyperstition. And it comes from one of the CCRU texts on their, their website. But it's, it's a four-step process of what a hyperstition is. Uh, so the first is an element of effective culture which makes itself real. The, the second element is fictional quantities functional as time-traveling devices. And then there's coincidence intensifiers and the call to the old ones. Th- those are the, the mm-hmm. four, the rights of hyperstition. And so a simplified explanation of that but still a little more in-depth than fictions that make themselves real, are uh, narratives able to effectuate their own reality through the workings of feedback loops, generating new socio-political attractors. And so that's a, a little more fleshed out idea of what a hyperstition is. Mm-hmm. So we can then f- understand how it's kind of playing out in this one-god universe the magical time war would then be the use of fictions to change the fixed reality from within itself and kind of undermining it by its own means
0: okay so let's let's use this story then as our as our point of reference where do we see this happening in the story lemurian time war because we have feedback we have these uh, loops we have this you know this idea of uh, this dominant control system that you're fighting against how do we see this play out in the story itself just in very practical i know you don't like practicality <laughs> i know you don't like that but just i just have a
1: difficult time with i it, understand
0: huh? <laughs> I understand. But just humor me for a moment. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna offer a, a suggestion. Let's see if I'm uh, if I'm understanding this. So, in this story, Burroughs, the character, is an actual person. He goes to this particular location and finds a book that he supposedly has not yet written. Correct? Am I saying that correct? Yeah. Okay. So this is the hyperstition, correct? So this is the feedback. This is the time aspect that there is this book that is not supposed to yet. It's not supposed to exist yet because he hasn't written it yet, but it does exist. Right?
1: Yeah. So the book would be an element of culture that makes itself real. Okay.
0: So when we get back to the rights of hyperstition, that's. Number one, right?
1: Yeah. And it's also uh, a fictional quantity functioning as a time-traveling device. Right. Because it's bridged this gap between uh, Burroughs and Burroughs. I, it's important to note that this book that he finds is present in the book that he finds. So in... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um In Ghost Sleamers of Madagascar, the book Ghost Sleamers of Madagascar, to my understanding, is something that is in the book itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you already get we're on multiple levels. Right.
0: Exactly. But these that we have elements here of things that are actual and real. So we have William Burroughs is an actual real person, as we understand it, in our dominant control system of time and linear time that we have to function in uh because we're we're all kind of entrapped in this in this time mm-hmm. system. So we've got this real character, this real person of William Burroughs. We have a real book called The Ghosts of Madagascar. But then we have this fiction of him going to this location and finding this book that he has not yet written. That's the that's this time element that's brought brought in. But it's also like a feedback as well correct because then something happens it within burrows in this fiction that causes a lot of other things to happen
1: and so now we get into coincidence intensifiers uh and it's also kind of the next narrative section of uh and time War. Mm-hmm. so after burrows has this experience in the library with this future book from the past um 1958 he discovers Geisen doing this cut-up method and he's just absolutely enthralled by it because it's a a radical time war tactic and given his previous experience with weird time loops he's starting to feel this very oppressive temporal control structure in his life just everywhere and even in him himself Um, so he gets really fascinated with the cut-up as a a method to counteract this temporal control. And then you kind of get Burroughs career, cut-ups, uh, everything Tom talked about. Mm-hmm. And then in the 80s, he starts to get really, really interested in lemurs. And then Ghost Lemurs of Madagascar, M- Madagascar and lemurs, uh, lemurs play a very important role in this, links up to Lumiria, But so he gets very interested in lemurs. And the book that he found starts coalescing as a thing that he wants to write in the first place even though he already saw that he wrote it he hasn't himself written it yet Um, but because he encountered it in the first place these coincidences start to intensify leading him to create it in itself and so the the fiction has become real Mm -hmm. and there's like a billion other layers to this that I'm trying to (laughs) engage and not engage at the same time. It's, it's tricky.
0: It is tricky. Okay. So, uh, the character of Mr. K from Lemurian time war states that the metaphysics of Burroughs work is clearly hyperstitional and how this, uh, how Burroughs work contrasts with the way postmodernists think about reality. So we're going to be talking about reality again. Let's talk about this difference. Uh, in how reality is viewed in postmodern thought and how reality is viewed in hyperstitional, uh, in the model of hyperstition. Because there are some important uh, concepts that we have to also think about with regards to this whole narrative, correct?
1: The the postmodernism that's raised... In the text is specifically literary postmodernism, okay. and postmodernism is one of those terms that has a dozen definitions plus, mm-hmm. depending on who's using it, where, and why.
0: Okay, so it's good um, that we specify what type of post postmodernism is literary.
1: Yeah. So this okay. this literary postmodernism that um, the CCRU critiques uh, can kind of be summed up as nothing is true because nothing is real so it's kind of a literary postmodernism gets used as this kind of self-reflexive method to mm-hmm. critique just the structured element of the world on like a social level mm-hmm. so it's it's very much social criticism by these postmodern writers and so, postmodern is a category, right. and it, it so it ends up just looking at what's being controlled, rather than even acknowledging that there is control. And so that's the the postmodern that's being critiqued. This is what Tommy had issue with in how Burroughs has been talked about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It talks about how experimental and avant-garde this cut-up kind of technique was and how it functioned as kind of a a criticism of society, but it doesn't consider it as what Burroughs was trying to do with it. The contrast to this ironic literary postmodernism as nothing is true because nothing is real would be kind of the chaos chaos, uh, statement. Nothing is true, everything is permitted which doesn't mean nothing's real. It just permits this excess of reality, Mm -hmm. um, building it up rather than reducing it to uh, social constructs.
0: So we get back to talking about these potentialities that these, these multiple realities that are all out there, that we're just not recognizing them as being potential realities. We look at them as fictions that they're not real. Correct?
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: And let's get back to control then again. And so we have this dominant time uh, concept, the, the, the dominant control program or system of time. And that has like an authority over everything because mm-hmm. it, and it has kind of usurped that position in a way. If you, if you want to look at it like that, about, you know, like a, a motivation or something. Um, Absolutely. So we have this authority structure, control, and how does hyperstition then counteract that? What, what do they propose uh, the system should look like?
1: Yeah, so hyperstitions break out of the control system because they break it from within. And so it's it's kind of a practice of using reality against itself, but by reality's own means. So because we have this uh, binary of fact and fiction, the hyperstition uses fiction against fact itself. And so what what that means is th- this combination of fictional entities and factual entities, in putting them both so clearly side by side, there's kind of an overlap and coincidence between the two where it starts to get blurred. Um, this will probably become apparent at the end of this podcast. Like okay. A lot of the things I'm saying are the narrative elements that the CCRU uses rather than this kind of like factual uh, quote-unquote mm-hmm. approach.
0: Yeah, that's why but we just... But yeah, it's, it's,
1: an, it's an overlap between mm-hmm. the two where it starts to get blurry
0: what's what. Exactly. What's real and what isn't real because it could all and, be real.
1: Yeah. So when yeah. this happens, um, this is the hyperstition happening, becoming real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the best way to become, to, to explain this process Uh, is, like, memes. Mm -hmm. Memes are one of the go-to examples for kind of hyperstitional propagation. Um, Because memes spread on their own. Like, they they take root in culture, Mm -hmm. and they just kind of proliferate until they become commonplace and identifiable and even kind of in our own thoughts. Like, I very frequently find myself thinking in memes uh, because it's this structure that's so... uh, Malleable.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, there's another uh, concept that you talk about: rhizomatic networks. What's that about? Because that has to do about yeah, authority as well, correct?
1: Yeah. The concept of the rhizome is at play in a lot of contemporary aesthetic speculative philosophy. It comes from uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari. Uh, who you would call postmodern philosophers, Mm -hmm. different than the literary Mm postmodernists. Like this, this definition of postmodernism, I would say is kind of reality excess. It's allowing for more Mm -hmm. Um, just to differentiate the term because they're they're both postmodern. But so the, the rhizome contrasts the arborescent schema, the schema of the tree Mm -hmm. linear, lineage uh, of causal development and so the rhizome is less like a tree that has branches in a specific direction and it's this root system that links to various things in various ways with no specific direction or intention or telos to it but nonetheless disparate things are still linked through multiple channels uh, so it's it's a decentralized system
0: it's like potatoes growing under the ground
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah. right instead of a tree that has one root system in our discussion here i know trees also <laughs> have an, a connected root system underground but in your uh, in your example a tree is one thing that has uh, branches the, the branches off of it And it's, yeah, it is a linear type thing. It's growing in one direction. Whereas the potatoes, they're all underground. They're connected by these little, I guess, little roots, little, I don't know what you would call those things. They were connected to each other, but there is Mm -hmm. no like real one source that you can say, oh, it's that thing, like that tree trunk. Because there are so many of these little things under the ground. Correct. I mean, I know I'm being really simple here, but I mean, it's it's... perfectly
1: (laughs) on point. And so the contrast between the rhizome and the tree in relation to hyperstition plays out in the temporal engineering or kind of schema of how hyperstitions infect time. In the arborescent schema, the tree, things just kind of go forward mm-hmm. out of other things, which the the hyperstation plugs into and utilizes, but it utilizes that with the rhizomatic model such that the relationships between the coincidences don't have to link up in a straight line. Uh, they, they link up across this and backwards and forwards, such that it's just thoroughly infected and wound around the the timeline as a straight and fixed thing.
0: And we see that in the story, Lemurian Time War, because apparently yeah. in the story, uh, Burroughs must have been existing in a different time period. So there is there's this hopping back and forth in time. There's books existing and then not existing, but then, you know, not yet existing, I should say. So there's all these, it's it's like jumbled up and it's like, it's very chaotic. And I think chaotic might be a good word that we need to like put a pin in because we're going to be coming back around to chaos later on um, in a particular way. So I think maybe we can move on to like another example that we can talk about uh, to uh, try to understand um, hyperstition a little bit, maybe in a different way. If we recall how Burroughs' views were considered hyperstitional by uh, Mr. K in the story, another example that, that we could use to discuss hyperstition is Charles Fort. Now, Fort is known for his work in documenting anomalous and or paranormal events, but he also held some interesting views that might be fruitful to talk about in this discussion. So if you'll uh, allow me, uh, for those listeners who don't know about Charles Fort, I'll give a little bit of a biography here. Uh, He was born in Albany, New York in 1874. So we're going back in time even further. Uh, And because of an inheritance from his uncle, he was able to work as a full-time writer. And he's best known for his collection of scientific anomalies or otherwise strange phenomena, such as the Book of the Damned from 1919. And the Damned in this particular context is referring to all the bizarre events that can't be explained. So uh, these accounts challenged what was accepted as scientific knowledge at that time. So it was kind of in this, quote unquote, other category, you know, where do we put all of these, all of these strange tales? Um, But this is where the term Fortean comes from. And the interest that Fort gained for his work gave rise to the Fortean Society and the magazine Fortean Times. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard about uh, this magazine. It's still active today. Uh, They probably heard this word Fortean. They know it has something to do with maybe strange paranormal things but they might not understand what the what the actual, you know, background is, the the connection is. So that's that's basically a little um a little bio of him. Uh the accounts that Ford collected, though, can be considered to fall in the categories of paranormal and supernatural as I said, but also occult, uh with examples such as odd occurrences of raining frogs or raining fish, Uh, spontaneous human combustion, poltergeist activity, UFOs and aliens, and also abduction stories. Uh, But what's important for our discussion here, I think, is that uh, there's actually three things. One, Fort didn't believe in the distinction between fiction and nonfiction. So that kind of puts the little flag up for me there. Uh, Two, the imagination was important to him in that in, in his opinion, imagined things could become real things in the physical world. So here we have another little, if we go back to our rites of hyperstition, uh, we, we see a kind of a little link there again. And three, his worldview discusses an open-ended system of inclusion, uh, meaning that all events and things, no matter how strange, are included in this system. And Dr. Jeff Kripal of Rice University calls this way of being quote unquote thinking in between in that it's quote on its way to the truth but is not the truth end quote and that quote or those quotes are uh, taken from Kripel's book called mutants and mystics and I will provide the info for that in the notes um, but for for our discussion here let's discuss how Charles Fort could be seen as summoning or performing a hyperstition, even though he died long before the term was coined.
1: I'm really glad that you suggested we talk about this. Uh, looking over um, Mutants and Mystics, I it's just fascinating kind of how well this plays into the entire hyperstitional discourse, you might say, mm-hmm. um, The first thing that popped out to me was Fort's term transmediumization. And the definition Krippel gives for this uh, is the idea that imagined things could become real physical things. Um, Or more so that the world is a physical mythical quasi thing.
0: Right. And there was another term that I didn't didn't mention just now that he liked to use, I believe, if I recall correctly, is truth fiction. Yeah. truth hyphen fiction as if it's just one thing because that's yeah, kind of his system everything is included so but please continue
1: yeah what kripal referred to this as uh the philosophy of the hyphen mm. which i for me really accentuates the, the in-betweenness of all of this and i think in-betweenness is uh an important element of all of this that we can get to. Okay. Um, something that stuck out to me with Fort is that he, he discusses the, the eras or the dominance of reality. Um, and this for me made me think of the one God universe
0: right. and
1: kind of the hyperstitional excess of uh, nothing is true. Everything is permitted.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that, what that is or what these uh, eras are?
1: yeah so so Fort said there were three dominants uh, or eras for reality, and the first one was the old dominant of religion, um, which is the the belief system the religious belief system where reality is the semiotic territory, as I said earlier with fictions uh, of the the religious mythology. So the way things happen, what's allowed to happen, the entire reason things happen, it all gets constrained within this religious field of semiosis. And then from that we get the second dominant of materialistic science, uh, which is the same thing except the explanation is now scientific materialist realism rather than religion. Ford says that what these Two dominants are are exclusionary. So Mm -hmm. they they dictate what can happen and what can't happen. Uh, They exclude. And then Fort has a a third dominant that he calls, uh, what does he call it? He doesn't really have a name for it. Um,
0: Intermediate, I believe. Yeah, there
1: we go. Thank you. Um, So the, the intermediate dominant is based on inclusion, which is this Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Mm. Emphasis on the everything is permitted. Uh, so it, it creates reality as this open-ended space where anything and everything is possible, without meaning that nothing is possible. Um, so it's, it's inclusion. Mm-hmm. And goes on to say that like there's a, a fourth dominant that'll be kind of the synthesis out of this third dominant of inclusion.
0: Because we're not we're not finished yet in this exactly. model, yeah. Okay.
1: And so to to kind of li- link that space of uh, mythical production of truth fictions as inclusion, we we start to see hyperstition kind of spreading. Mm. Um, so f- the way I understand this for kind of sought out and documented all of these weird, strange occurrences that were going on in reality. And so for me, this creates um, part of the rhizomatic network for hyperstitional virus to spread. Because now when we see these things also, we have past links for them in the first place. And so there's already feedback going on, which legitimizes and kind of makes these things real, um, We be it culturally or literally. I noticed he uses the word teleport a lot, mm-hmm. which really wasn't a term at the time. But now, like, teleport's a right. commonplace term. Everyone knows yeah. what it is. And it's not necessarily a material reality, um, an actual thing. But it, it's a virtual reality. Like, it's a very real word for us that we have semiotic representation for. It just doesn't really work with physics yet. Right. Um, that's a, a quantum physics discussion itself. Not right. important. Right. Um, but it, it's a thing now. It's, it's virtually real. Yes. Uh, and it, it's spread through time.
0: And we see it's in shows like uh, Star Trek. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a very understandable concept to us. It's not something foreign to us anymore.
1: Fort for me is a good segue into the idea of hyperstition as time virus and Mm -hmm. from that time conspiracy. And I think this would be a good way to link hyperstition into a bunch of different topics in Western esotericism thinkers and actors and events in 20th century a culture. If you want to open that can of worms, uh, I think this it. would be a good
0: platform. Okay. Cool.
1: So Fort, in his investigation of strangeness, uh, is often cited as a source of, for the, the idea of high weirdness. This idea of high weirdness gets Pumped and looped through a bunch of different things in the 20th century that aren't necessarily connected in any linear sense. Uh, so I think a good place to start with this might be Alistair Crowley. Um, yeah. We can. We can. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go. We'll try. I'm gonna try and go through it in a straight line. We'll Do it see however how well you like. Goes. Perfect. <laughs> So Alistair Crowley in 1918 did a, a ritual in New York City where he speculated to have interacted with this extraterrestrial entity, Lamb, L-A-M. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been noted that Lamb looks a whole lot like uh, a gray alien. Exactly. So, so point num- number one. Fast forward a little bit to Lovecraft. Lovecraft wrote The Call of Cthulhu in the late twenties, I believe, but he sets it in early nineteen or er, early twentieth century Louisiana, uh, specifically on Halloween night on November 1st. Uh, and November first. And Lovecraft details these kind of orgiastic rituals conjuring forth this entity and he goes into some depth about this and the funny thing about the the dates that Lovecraft picked were on those exact dates in the past Crowley was channeling uh various holy books for Thalema and in one of these books, there's, like, a weird phrase that Crowley himself says he doesn't understand. It's, like, about Tetulu, um, and there's another thing that ends up referencing, uh, like, voodoo religion. And Crowley has no idea what these means. Like, they're just channeled text that he's kind of communicating through some other entity. So now you have this Lovecraft-Crowley connection. In addition to this Crowley- UFO connection, right? Fast forward a little bit to uh, Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons in 1946 did a ritual in the in Southwest United States with L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and this uh, this Babylon working is rumored to have opened a portal but not closed it that led to the roswell incident in 1947 near roswell new mexico oh, um, another... roswell incident which go. happened in 1947 so you're starting to see this this weird connection of things.
2: yes yes
1: fast forward again a little bit and we get chaos magic in the late 60s um which again loops back to crowley because of austin Osman Spare and uh but Chaos Magic has this engagement with Lovecraft. Simultaneously, we get Kenneth Kenneth Grant, who is using Lovecraft to develop the Lema. More Lovecraft. Kenneth Grant gets into UFOs in his later work, like more UFO stuff. Uh, Oh, furthermore, Jack Parsons in his Black Pilgrimage makes a lot of references to Lovecraftian uh, elements.
0: Doesn't he also talk about uh, the King in Yellow or something like that? About Carcosa? Yeah, he, right? yeah and so
1: the King in Yellow incorporates a fiction making itself real even further into this right. complex, like, time conspiracy that's happening super non temporally. To add to this even more, um, in the, the Book of the Law, there's a, a cipher that's used for Crowley's um, Kabbalah, the English Kabbalah. And so it's the kind of numerical, pneumogrammatic system of kind of number coding, decoding. And in the late 80s, a Thelmite, Alan Greenfield, applies this cipher once it's cracked. It isn't cracked until we get computer technology for the most part. But he, he applies it to UFO reports, um, and various other high weird phenomenon to kind of figure out if there's any sort of message there. And this leaks into Mothman prophecy stuff uh, and Indrid Cold and, like, that entire UFO debacle, which itself links into, like, Bigfoot stuff, mm-hmm. which is starting to link into UFO stuff. Uh, and you start to see, like, how these superstitions spread plug in the ancient alien hypothesis and then you just get this entire infected temporality of like time conspiracy yes but the thing about all this is it lines up super super well and the narratives are terrifyingly cohesive even though there's no intention on the part of any of these actors some some of them are plugging into this on purpose. Others of them are kind of involved with it on a periphery. And then some of them have no idea. Like H.P. Lovecraft was a staunch atheist, very scientific uh, materialist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas Crowley was not, <laughs> not uh, even not though he, he believed in both. Mm. And so you, you start to see kind of the autonomy of hyperstition and how it, it leads to its own infection of reality to make itself real.
0: Uh but
1: all this links to Ford's high weirdness. Mm. And you, you see, like, this spread without any linearity, but linearity.
0: Right. And sometimes it's happening purposefully, and sometimes it's happening randomly. Mm-hmm. So is the term uh, synchronicity app- applicable here?
1: Yeah. Um, the, the third rite of hyperstition, uh, coincidence intensifiers... I think about that as synchronicity production.
0: Okay. Um, So that helps us to also understand what that means, that concept, because people know what synchronicity is. So, yeah.
1: Theoretically, synchronicities are hyperstitional in themselves. Like The the mechanics of a hyperstition are a good way to explain the phenomenon of synchronicity.
0: Please join us for Part 2, where we continue our discussion about how feedback loops work, how the Pepe the Frog meme used by chaos magicians shook up the 2016 U.S. election, and how Bob Lazar of Coast to Coast fame gets included in the story.